Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast. He is Chris Marlin. I am Connor Aguirre. I've got an announcement. It is the offseason, but my takes, they're in midseason form. You know, you already know why. So this happened like six days ago. By the time you're listening to this, you're like, this is old news. But we haven't had a chance to talk about this yet. Malik Willis, I can admit, is no longer the number eight quarterback in the SEC. I mean, I, yeah, that was a, that was tough. I, I was very excited uh, when that happened. because Not because I was right and you were wrong. I was excited because at first, when I, when I saw that it happened, I remembered I was the one that predicted that he not only would not be the starter, but he would be in the transfer portal or somewhere else before the first game. You are that was correct. like in my early, early hot takes, like before we even talked about the, the quarterback rankings. And so, you know, as I always do, immediately went to go seek some validation and attention mm-hmm. on social media, mm-hmm. wanted to go post it. And then I realized I wasn't going to be able to do that because of you. Wait, why, what did I do? Well, you said he was going to be the eighth best quarterback in the league. So I could right. be like, hey, guess what podcast? Guess yeah, this correctly. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's that's fair. Oh, yeah, if you were trying to give the podcast credit for it. No, that's that's perfectly understandable. I appreciate you lumping me into that. But, uh, yes, Malik Willis is in the transfer portal, um, as I jokingly tweeted at somebody who tweeted at me, because he hasn't announced his destination as of right, right. now. Um, but somebody tweeted at me like, oh, like way to go, nice prediction, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, let's... You know, there's there's still a you chance never know. that he comes back with the transfer portal. You can go in and come back out. That's true. Um, no, he's he's probably not coming back though. And it does look like Joey Gatewood or Bonix is going to be the guy. That's pretty much a lock at this point, barring something absolutely crazy like Gus Malzahn going after a grad transfer quarterback or something like that. But we don't expect that to happen at this point. So we have a lot to get to today. Um, we're not going to spend 20 minutes talking about Malik Willis, believe it or not. No. Um, I, I'll fully admit I was, I was wrong on that. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about some, some updated grad transfer quarterback news in the SEC. Uh, something that Willie Taggart said that was really, really dumb, very Butch Jones-like. Um, we have peak off-season content from us and from our friends over at CBS Sports. And by friends, I mean acquaintances that we see and we don't really get along that well, but they're, they're there. Um, and then we have uh, some great stuff that we're going to get to at the end, of course, with fourth and wrong, me tweets, all that stuff. So the quarterback carousel continues to roll, and it rolled through the SEC last Friday. Because as it turns out, Tommy Stevens, the Penn State grad transfer quarterback, the fifth-year guy, is reuniting <clears throat> with Joe Moorhead, who, by the way, as like five minutes before we came on to start recording, agreed to a new contract that's going to give him like $3.2 million a year, I believe Bruce Feldman reported. Um, But the big news on Friday was that Tommy Stevens is going to Mississippi State. And a lot of people looked at that situation and thought, whoa, Joe Moorhead goes and gets a guy that he had at Penn State, worked with him for a couple years. Does that mean Tommy Stevens is going to be the guy? And what does this mean for Keaton Thompson? It's twofold. It's twofold. Right. There are a lot of different layers with this and what it kind of says about Joe Moorhead, what he thinks about his offense, what he thinks about Keaton Thompson, and what he is really trying to do in 2019. Because we had Joe Moorhead on this podcast a couple months ago. We asked him about Keaton Thompson. He said, you know, he's a gamer. All this all this stuff about, you know, what he's been able to do and, and how he, continu- he needs to continue to progress from the accuracy standpoint. Bringing in Tommy Stevens suggests that Keaton Thompson is not at the level that Joe Moorhead wants him to be to be the opening day starting quarterback for 2019. Right. I mean, I think with most cases, the, the number one reason for this is depth and competition. 
you're not going to turn down a, a, a quarterback necessarily if it's going to help provide quality depth going into the season. Um, that being said, I don't think having the personal relationship that Moorhead had with Stevens and the familiarity with each other, I don't think he would have brought him in if there was 0% chance he was going to play. Right, and there's so what What I think this is, is I think it's it's a wide-open battle. I, yeah. That's not my way of saying that I think Keaton Thompson is going to get benched, but I think it's at the same time, if you're Joe Moorhead and if you want to see more out of Keaton Thompson, you want to see that accuracy improve. Let's not forget that he, while he does have the, the win against Lamar Jackson in the Tax Slayer Bowl and he had the, you know, the seven-touchdown game last year when Nick Fitzgerald was suspended, let's not forget this is a career 48% passer. And that was the big issue last year with Mississippi State. And we know that those receivers don't exactly give their quarterback a whole lot of help. I think that's fair to say. Um, And I think that he just doesn't want deja vu of 2018. And you need something to kind of spice up this offense. And so Tommy Stevens is going to have a chance to win. And I think what those conversations, if I'm if I'm guessing here, just is this pure speculation. I don't think Joe Moorhead sat Tommy Stevens Tommy Stevens down and said, "Hey, look, you come to Starkville, you're the guy. You're the starter." Um, I, I think he said, look, you, you come here, you're going to have a good chance to compete. Joe Moorhead was not the one who recruited Keaton Thompson. Now, he's had a year and a half to work with him, and he's had a lot of time to be able to kind of mold him into his system and, and work with him. But let's also remember, too, the red shirt is available for Keaton Thompson. That's still on the table. He's had two years now where he's played more than, well, last year he played more than the, the four-game threshold. So theoretically... If this happened, I'm not saying it's going to, but if Tommy Stevens were the guy for his one year of eligibility in 2019, Keaton Thompson, if he did want to stay in Starkville, would have two years of eligibility left after this year. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but yeah, I don't think that would I'm happen. sure. I'm sure that's in the back of Joe Moorhead's mind of like, there there are some options to how this thing can go, and even if I make a move like this, which is a little bit of a roll of the dice, because the way that grad transfers work in today's quarterback market, you never know. If a guy like Garrett Schrader leaves, if a guy like Jalen Maiden leaves, that's obviously not a good look for you. But at the same time, if you feel like you got to show some offensive improvement in 2019, which he does, there's nothing wrong with going out and adding some more competition to your room. Well, you know, it, it also, from from a certain standpoint, I don't think he would bring him in again just to be the backup, necessarily. I don't think he would do that to where he would have zero you know, percent chance of winning the starting job or that he's destined to be a backup. But also, when you look at it from a recruiting standpoint and just a projection standpoint, a lot of people are high on Keaton Thompson. He was a pretty highly ranked recruit coming out of high school as a top. We both agree guy. that he was probably going to be the starter too. And we did yeah. like the 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 ranking, the, the tiers of quarterbacks in terms of the battles and stuff. Right. And he was like a guy that Moorhead wasn't going to say that he was the outright starter, but we're like, all right, he's going to start opening day. But I mean, if if that was if you know we redid that now, I would mm-hmm. probably have a different opinion just because exactly. of the fact of the familiarity with with uh, Stevens and Moorhead's offense. Because that's the thing, it's it's Moorhead's offense and trying to find someone that not only fits it, but also understands it and what they're trying to do. You, I think they're going to have a little bit more... I, I think this year at Mississippi State, the defense is not going to win you those games. You're not going to have a defense that is number one across the board, scoring defense, total defense, all those things to help you out. Like You're going to have to go win some ball games with your offense. And you have Kylan Hill coming back, and you should be still pretty, pretty good on offense. You do lose Nick Fitzgerald, which I know from how terrible of a passer he was, and I don't think T- like Thompson's much better you're going to have to replace a lot of production at quarterback. Thompson is somebody that has had three starts, actually two starts, but I would say the third one with significant playing time against Ole Miss in that game where Fitzgerald got hurt. And he's done really well. Like this, I always bring up the seven-touchdown game against Stephen F. Austin at the beginning of last year. 
But also, you know, against, like you said, Lamar Jackson, the bowl game, and Ole Miss, he put up over 300 yards total offense. Those are against teams that either are FCS or also in the bottom half of the country in defense. And I think if, if he was if he had progressed even more so last year, we would have seen him involved in more games, kind of like we did with Stevens. Like, I think Thompson has obviously more experience starting in, in, in games and, like, starting and finishing a game. But Stevens has played in a lot more, I would say, real-time competition. It's interesting because if you go back to that Auburn game last year where everybody was calling for Fitzgerald to get benched, and if Fitzgerald doesn't come out ready to go in that first half, we would have seen Keaton Thompson yep. that game and maybe even the rest of the season. But history has a, has a funny way of, of, you know, one little thing can change the course of, of history with these things. And for, the, for what it's worth, I think Keaton Thompson is a better downfield thrower than Nick Fitzgerald. That's a small oh, yeah. sample size, but I do think that he is better based on what we've seen. Now, what's important to remember with Stevens are a few things. So back in 2016, when Joe Moorhead arrives at Penn State and Trace McSorley is battling with Stevens in, in, you know, into fall camp for that job, Trace McSorley was ridiculously good that offseason. Yeah. Like, really, really good. Like, lit up the spring game. It was, like, near perfect in the spring game. And it was like, oh, my God, this guy's already better than Christian Hackenberg at his peak. And well, so, well, I mean, like, peak, like, I'm, I'm talking, like, 2014 pinstripe bowl, right. like, back in the day when, like, he was, like, looking like a pro prospect. But so for, for Stevens, like, he had a very tough bar to live up to and came really close to actually, like, winning that job. People might forget that. But when he didn't win that job, Moorhead loved him so much that Penn State created a new position for him. It was called the Lion. And they basically had him line up at receiver. They had him line up at halfback. He'd run jet sweeps. He'd catch passes. He was like the Mr. Utility Man of that offense. And they looked for different ways to get him involved because guy is 6'5", 240. He's a big dude. He can run. He can get on the edge. And he can move pretty well. And so... You still need to see things like, you know, in terms of, you know, reading defenses and stuff like that. He's not where he needs to be yet, in my opinion, based on what we've seen from him. And you can go back and he has made some some bad throws in his career, just oh, some yeah. flat out bad throws. But at the same time, if, you, if you're Joe Moorhead and you feel like, look, I've got to put my eggs in, in somebody and I, I want some options here because, you know, it, and even from a depth standpoint, too. If even if you decide Tommy Stevens is my backup quarterback and I'm gonna whatever I'll go with Keaton Thompson he's my guy you could still add some spice into this offense by putting Tommy Stevens into it that way and running the lion position and doing some different things because this offense last year was so bland and just needed some spice and if Tommy Stevens is a guy that can provide a little bit of kick then I think Joe Moorhead will take it. I mean yeah it's weird to think about because I don't know the ins and outs of Penn State's offense or offseason or anything like that I was surprised that he transferred because just in the very limited amount of a lot of watched, people were. Any, any kind of Penn State games last year, and I know they had what they had with Trace McSorley, and I know the year they were coming off of and all that kind of that kind of stuff, especially with him being a senior, but that was not a guy they kept out of games. And it wasn't just mop-up duty. Like, I know he had, you know, some extra time against teams like Maryland and Michigan, stuff like that, but, like, you know, Iowa, he was also involved, like, you know, where, where they weren't just bringing him in as, like, a decoy or that he was bringing in, like, the old Tebow stuff, like his freshman year was, like, fourth and short, we're going to run the wildcat of the line or whatever you want to call it. I think it's it's interesting because... Again, going back to the defensive side, like with Mississippi State, if you had a guy like Keaton Thompson who might be a little bit more error-prone or turnover-prone, which I think he might be because he's not a very accurate thrower, last year was the time to be able to to have that um, – what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, to have that potential, I guess, in your offense. Like, you, that upside in your offense? Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't say upside. I would say you know potential for disaster in your offense because like, your defense is going to allow you to get away with a lot more. This year – it's I not really the case. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, so again, like with 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 Stevens, like I first off, let me throw this out there. Tommy Stevens is like the greatest name for anyone that was ever like in a small town, best athlete, prom king, and then like two years later was like managing a Dairy Queen while still wearing their Letterman jacket. That's all yes. I think of when I hear Tommy Stevens. It's from Indianapolis, but that's all right. Same thing. Um, no, I mean, I, I think it's just it's just interesting to see how it's going to line up because he'll definitely be involved in the offense. He will definitely be involved. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing that I keep coming back to is that he's going to find some way to just make make Mississippi State a little bit more you know a little bit more versatile in what they're able to do. So yeah, from that standpoint, I think I think it's going to be a battle. I think it'll be a battle into fall camp, and I think Joe Moorhead legitimately wants to see how both of these guys react right. to this situation. And I think that if you're him, it makes a lot of sense to do something like this and make sure that you have both guys competing at their absolute best. We saw what competition did last year for Kellen Mond. If they can do something like that for Keaton Thompson right. or Tommy Stevens, then you'll take it as a coach. Well, and, and one last thing about it, too, is is something that, I, again, I don't think he's going to be a guy that's like brought in just to be a backup by any means. But it's Joe Moorhead can't be holding Keaton Thompson's hand or any of the quarterback's hand throughout every single step of the way, every practice, every meeting, all that kind of stuff. Now he at least has another guy that's not just a coach barking out True. orders at you to help you understand the offense, figure out what you're supposed to do. And then, you know, like we said, that in turn will help create better competition anyway. A guy who could use a quarterback these days, Willie Taggart. All right. So remember a few months ago when I went on the, the Florida State rant? Yeah. And I basically, it was the do something rant from Florida State. Um, kind of mocking their their hashtag that they've gone with for the last year, basically during the Taggart era. Uh, not the best great. hashtag. Not not ideal. Not ideal. So over the weekend, Willie Taggart made some headlines because, well, not necessarily because he was speaking to like some massive crowd. I spoke to like less than a hundred people at a right. Top Golf in Tampa. I'm pretty sure I've actually been to this Top Golf in Tampa a couple times. It's pretty nice. If it's the one in Brandon, shout out Brandon. Tommy Stevens, um, the bartender there. Yeah, um, okay, sure. I, I can believe that. Club pro. Um, so, <laughs> Willie Taggart uh, gets on the mic, and he's asked about the state of FSU, and he says, we're undefeated. Uh, okay, um, that's not all he said. Obviously, you know, he was asked about, you know, what what it was like to, you know, go through the season and what he thinks expectations should be, why he thinks that they're going to improve from 5-7. and seven. But he gave a very Butch Jones-like answer. And... I kind of, you know, I wrote about the subject and basically revisited the rant that I went on a few a few months ago, and I said, "Look, Florida State is not undefeated. They've been taking L's all off season. What in the world would lead this guy to believe that? Oh, yeah, it's just a clean slate now, and nothing nothing about last year mattered." And he said, "We don't talk about last year." Yeah, I don't. I mean, uh, what? What? Like, so five and seven years pretending that that was just just non-existent. Almost. I'm not saying you got, Not saying you got to dwell on this stuff, but like. Oh my gosh! For for you to come out and say that in that position when you're five and seven, if you're eight and four, this doesn't make headlines. Nobody cares. But if you're if you're eight and four or, or if you're five and seven rather, and you're coming out with something like this, it's a bad look. And this the is the first one of those time they didn't go to a bowl realize. game in how many years? This is the first time they didn't go to a bowl game since 1981. Longest streak in college football snapped in year one. Now, what what a lot of people come out? So I had a lot of people. Um, respond to, to to what I wrote and basically like they posed it against what Andy Staples wrote. And Andy Staples wrote a piece uh, for Sports Illustrated that was really good, basically saying like we kind of underestimated how difficult this was going to be in year one for Willie Taggart. And I get that. And I'm actually not even faulting FSU so much for the five and seven season because they had a lot of holes up front in their offensive line. Just Ooh. in the trenches, they were a disaster. And from a discipline standpoint, they were they weren't good. And I don't necessarily even fault them for that. It's everything that's happened since then. 
with Florida State, with hiring Kendall Bryles, a guy that you know was a considered a big part of that whole Baylor investigation and the the, the culture of sexual misconduct that went on there um, under Art Bryles. And, you know, it's FSU not being able to sign a quarterback recruit for the second straight year. How are you an offensive-minded coach and you can't sign a quarterback recruit in back-to-back years? And instead, you watch them go to Maryland and Ole Miss and UNC, and I'm getting into a rant again. Please cut me off. So I don't think here, – here's where I'll say that I think that we're not being fair to Willie Taggart. It's, first off, it's hilarious because if anybody that knows – if you're a fan of an SEC school or you're, you know, you didn't like Florida State necessarily at any point, you didn't like the Jameis Winston stuff, you didn't like, you know, oh, you I, hate them now. I, I hated them in the 90s because of the fact that I was like, geez, they don't play anybody. And this is at a time when, like, they just started regionalizing games, like on ABC versus CBS. The so CBS, you had all the SEC games. ABC, I was getting Big Ten or, or ACC stuff, and it's like, okay, Florida State versus, oh, they're at Wake Forest this week. Like, you know, it's a slaughter. I will say I have a, a very good friend of mine, Tyler Huck, who's a, a huge Florida State fan. So I've, I, I wouldn't say privy to more information. Just I've had to hear a lot more information because we're good buddies and, and we talk about football all the time. And I don't think we're giving them a fair shake because, in my opinion, I don't think enough of this is being pinned on the way Jimbo Fisher left it. I don't, I don't know if Taggart should have said this. It did come off very Butch Jones-esque. I'm the one that made the the whole Butch Jones versus Willie Taggart meme yesterday for SCS, like on social media, it did come off very Butch Jones-esque. I, I'm, more, I'm more concerned with the fact that he said, we don't talk about last year. Yeah, that's bad. That, was, that part was surprising. But I really don't think, I think he's a, a, a decent coach. I don't know if he's you know going to turn this program around or get it back to where they were and, and be as dominant as they were. Because for one reason, that was one of the most dominant programs in the history of college football. 14 straight years being in the top five. Um, you look at the team from 2013 that was so good, but I feel like a lot of this that he's having to, I guess, that he's he's suffering a lot of the repercussions and consequences of things that were done prior to him arriving in Tallahassee. And and there's there's been a there's been a, a you know a decent amount that's been said about that about the job that Jimbo Fisher did from a recruiting standpoint. Some of the, just the the overall dynamics of the football program, and you know he left because of this disagreement with this awkward uh, hierarchy that they have between boosters and boosters having all the control over whether or not they're going to get new facilities, and that's what a lot of this stuff goes back to, and what you know you could really kind of trace some of the the struggles with you know Florida State and Florida from a recruiting standpoint. There are a lot of people who, and Andy Staples' article pointed this out as well about how you know during the arms race they were slow, they were very very slow, and they still you know they got this this new indoor facility and that's all well and good, but they still need like the football only building and all these things that places like Clemson have that, and it's like yeah we we have the, we have this this thing kind of figured out right now, and those those schools have just been late on that, and so there are things like that like yeah that's not Willie Taggart's fault like there's there's yeah. no. You know, DeAndre Francois gets accused from his from his girlfriend of, of you know ongoing abuse. That's not necessarily Willie Taggart's fault. How he's handled his quarterback situation, I would argue, is his doing and his inability to sign recruits when they are going to places like Maryland and Ole Miss, UNC, and I, that bears repeating. Because if you're Florida State, you shouldn't be doing this. And if you're Florida State, you need to be able to be better in every single facet. That's from a recruiting standpoint. That's from a marketing right. standpoint. That's not putting Martin Luther King's arm on a stupid tomahawk chop to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. Very that was bad real idea. bad. That was real bad. Horrible. Social media has been probably, I think, the worst uh, 
a part of all of this. Yeah, it has been. And the public perception is just not good. When you have all the story that came out from, I think it was Matt Baker who wrote this for um, for Tampa.com, just like all the stuff about how you hire Kendall Bryles when you have boosters, you have sexual assault victims on your campus coming up to your president, your AD, and being like, hey, do not do this. Whatever you do, make sure that you do not hire somebody with his background. I want to be a proud alum. I want to be a proud student, whatever it is. I want to be proud to wear Florida State colors. Do not hire somebody who has been, who's, you know, been a part of something so horrific in college football, something that you're trying to get out, and instead they pay him a million dollars a year. So, I like, mean, yeah, and I don't want to touch on the Bryle stuff as much because I don't know the ins and outs of it. I do know that Tennessee was also in the running for trying to trying to grab him. And there was and, a lot of frustration a, from Tennessee fans yeah, as well about I that. I think a lot of it, like, I'm not going to touch on what was going on at Baylor because it's absolutely terrible, and we've sounded off on that before, and just how... That kind of program, the stuff of Penn State, I, those are things that I feel like are, as a program, you should probably be considered as, as being shut down. Regardless, Bryles, whether we like it or not, has gotten a lot of, I don't want to say guilty by association, like he didn't have a play in it, but because of his last name, it's made even worse. And it, again, all I'm saying for... No, no, no. What's worse is the is the Title IX report that had him saying like, hey, come do like white women come to Baylor? The Title IX report alleging that he said that is the right. worst part of that whole thing and why he's so linked closely to the 19 different players at Baylor that were accused of sexual assault during Art Bryles' run. That's why he's negatively associated. I mean, that's fair. I, I, would, I just think that from Taggart's standpoint of what he has been doing, and I'm, there's no part of me that's going to defend them hiring... Kendall Bryles, or, right, right. or look into it all because I, it, as we discussed, the whole situation with Baylor grossed me out. I, I didn't want to delve into any of the specifics or what happened with why Florida State hired him or the excuses they made or anything like that. I'm just saying from strictly a standpoint of what was already in place, when you look at stuff like we talked about off air, the, the APR rankings of, of Florida State being last and this in is from FBS, yeah. in the entire no, I think it was in Power Five only, right? It was in in, in FBS as well. That's see, that's crazy to yeah. be last, and and that's over a four year span. But that uh, all the rumors that I had heard and and what we kind of heard about Jimbo on his way out was something shady was going on. One of the reasons you know he kept he kept saying like publicly about why he wanted to leave is because his assistants weren't getting enough money, or the facilities weren't you know they were due for an upgrade and they weren't getting them. His assistants were the sixth highest paid like staff in the country, they had just gotten a raise, I think a year or two prior. I think a majority of what was put in place for Taggart to, to take over, we look at Florida State and we're like, they don't play the, like the toughest schedule. Um, they're in a absolute, absolute hotbed for recruiting in Florida. And they've been traditionally, they've been a better uh, recruiting, I guess, program than Florida or Miami. And they pretty much own the state of Florida. But when you look at, what happened with Jimbo when he's not recruiting, not just quarterbacks, but he's not recruiting offensive linemen. So once they get to school, and you're talking about multiple, I think it was at least three defensive linemen who had to play offensive line in a game. Connor, you know last year at one point PFF, uh, Pro Football Focus, had one of their offensive linemen grayed out as a zero in a game? A zero. Like, do you not move in the game? Like, an absolute zero. Like, how does that happen? You get and 500 points for writing your name. That Exactly. <laughs> so that part to me is, is a little bit crazy. And the stuff, like I said, with, with the quarterback recruiting part of it, I think Taggart made a lot of mistakes. I, I think he made a lot of mistakes with, you know, last year when they had Sam Howell, who was a, the quarterback recruit they had committed for a very long time. Flips he had made a promise yeah. to him that his dad wanted in place. It was an agreement. He, uh, whoever his, uh, his main recruiter was, Walt Bell, and, and the, the father and the son, they had in place that he was not going to recruit another quarterback. Not your best move, 
when you look at all the struggles you've had at the quarterback position over the past year, your first year and the year before that, and what happens right before signing day, they had this very dumb assumption uh, and agreement that he was going to sign with them. He goes to UNC. So now you're leaving like a month and a half to get another kid in place before you have the second signing day. That is that is stupid. I, I will I will judge him way more off that versus him not being able to get a quarterback. Because if you're showing tape to a quarterback, especially in his first year and the year before that, all you're showing is somebody getting their teeth kicked in because the offensive line was awful. Right, right. And the funny thing about that, too, is they actually had a kid, uh, uh, Legandri, I think that's his name. Um, but he's a four-star kid who was like, he was 100% on the crystal ball of Florida State uh, for the second signing day. And then on signing day, he's like, no, I'm going to Maryland. And everybody's like, what? That, yeah, yeah. Like, that was like, oh, my gosh. And then John Reese Plumley, who was the Georgia, long-time Georgia commit, right. and he ends up going to Ole Miss instead of Florida State. So, like, they essentially whiffed on three quarterbacks in this class that right. any it, other year Florida State probably gets. But that's that, to me, is like part of this, this whole thing. With, it's with one Tiger. thing to lose a commitment like that with somebody like Florida State, who we always – you know, look at, and it seems like they're in the top five or top ten in recruiting in the country. It's one thing for them to lose a, like a, a commit or recruit. It's another for them to lose it to Maryland or UNC. Yeah, um, that's, the, that's the thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. That, that part, like, there is, is really concerning. But the stuff with, with Taggart, I think, you know, it's been one year. I, I think this is a little bit us kind of kicking them when they're down because you look at it, again, what he walked into. If, if Jimbo is such a quarterback guru... Jimbo was doing nothing to keep these recruits coming in. He didn't like actively recruit a lot of the players as he was getting ready to leave. And for a full year, he was telling, as everyone already knew, like he's gonna he's gonna leave. He's gonna leave. Like it's it's come to that point where the, the relationship between him and the administration is so contentious that he is gonna leave if there's a better option. And he constantly said, Nope, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. And then, you know, threw his Christmas tree out on the on the front yard and left. I think, you know, being able to bring in Three grad transfer quarterbacks has been good for Taggart. Also being able to have like a four-star, I think, in the 2020 class. He's he's doing things and instilling like a pride with the program that Fisher basically had left. When you talk about an APR ranking of dead last, that has way more to do with not your kids being smart or not putting in the work in, but no one being held accountable for them to be doing the work. And I think that was kind of program-wide with FSU. And, I mean, we talked about it again off-air when Dion went there uh, before the season and he was talking with Taggart, Taggart said he was amazed at the fact that no one knew the fight song. Like, there's just, there was no sense of program pride that when Jimbo left and he wasn't, I, I think way more of this has to do with, with Jimbo than, than Taggart. The DeAndre, DeAndre Francois injury against Bama. Oh, is one of It's one of the great what-ifs, really, of college football in the 2010s yeah. decade, I think, and how many different things happened after that. I, I've said that a lot on this podcast, but I think it bears repeating because a lot of this stuff would be a lot different. Now, I came up with a different thing that um, Willie Taggart should have said um, when asked like, hey, you know, state of Florida State right now, as weird as that is to say, what is it? So this is my statement for Willie Taggart. He can take this, he can pretend, he can do a control Z, pretend that, you know, last Saturday, last Sunday, whenever this happened, it didn't exist. Here's my statement. Last year was unacceptable, that's on me. For one reason or another, we didn't reach the high expectations that come with a program like ours. I am going to do whatever I can to make sure that never happens again. Everything we do, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, it has to be done better. I look forward to getting us back to that elite level. Yeah, Boom. no, I think that's... Close that's, quote. I like that. And I, I'm sure he said something similar to that maybe when he first took over the job. You can't really 
just say it say it again after year one being But saying so you're undefeated after a five and seven right. season is yeah. And I get what he good. meant. Like, you know, he said it kinda of tongue in cheek, was like, Oh, we're undefeated, like can't get much worse. But this, you know, for me it goes back to the same thing I brought up with Mullen, like ad nauseum is if you're in the spotlight, like if you like you he has to know that for the most part, people aren't pulling for for Florida State at all. And you know, from a national standpoint. But when you are already kind of under the microscope and, and under the scrutiny of of like a national lens, like especially with the whole the social media thing, that is just you know what I mean? Like if you're if you're not doing well and you're five and seven, you miss your a bowl game for the first time since eighty one, your hashtag can't be do something. Yeah. Probably good. also shouldn't publicly say like we're undefeated because you know how the like what the end result's gonna be. In the same way with Mullen, like you know, you're going to make a, yourself an easy target. I, I agree with what you said. That's what should have been said. I just think that we're piling on a little bit. Let's shift to some other peak off-season content. We, uh, it, it's not really an off-season unless somebody's complaining about Bama's schedule. And don't you know, CBS Sports came out with a list of the toughest SEC schedules and the weakest SEC schedules. And we talked about what we think. I think we talked about it last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, we talked about it a couple weeks ago with South Carolina, potentially them right. having the toughest schedule in the country. Peak off-season content is complaining about Bama's schedule or really Clemson. Those two have both kind of gotten into that conversation because both are going to be... It's, it really comes out when a lot of these early lines come out and you're like, oh, Bama's going to be favored by double digits in every game. Right. Well, so, yeah, explain this, though, because I think you have a really good take on this that that is overlooked because everyone wants to talk about this preseason, like, you know, especially in, like, the magazines, we have the rankings and, and strength of schedule, all that kind of stuff. Why do you not like it so much? I don't like it because it seems like it's hinged entirely on the Duke game. And it seems like everything that we decide about Bama's schedule is based on one non-conference game. And we kind of move past the fact that we've been calling the SEC West the toughest division in college football and Bama still has to play in that division. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, they're playing Duke in non-conference play. And I'm not even saying that that Bama's schedule, I'm not saying that it isn't easy because we look at this stuff way, way early and way out. And, you know, before we can know like how these teams are actually going to play out. And my, my problem with this whole thing is if we're basing this entirely on that game, then that's that's silly because we're discounting the fact that, that Bama is obviously playing in a tough league and we're doing projecting for every single team. And I don't like looking at the strength schedule argument as much from like a ranking standpoint, really until the end. If we're talking yeah. about a playoff hunt where Bama's sitting there with only one win against the top 25 team, only one team that's going to a bowl game, that's a totally different discussion, and I get that. But like, to sit here and, and say like, oh, Bama shouldn't even like, you know, people are already like very fed up about Bama and Clemson. I don't really like that about getting fed up about schedules when we don't know how good they're going to be. It just seems yeah, silly. Yeah, that's more so what I meant, like from like a big like you know a, uh, the full season standpoint of it. Because I think yeah, you're right. People do get caught up on the fact that oh, they're playing Duke, and then you you know look down the line, and it's like well, they're also playing Western Carolina in November. Um, yeah, I'm not going to defend the schedule and say that it's it's super difficult but yeah i do think people get kind of like bent out of shape my my gripe with this is still goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago i'm just surprised at why everyone thinks south carolina has the most difficult schedule in the conference oh that's interesting okay yeah i mean because as, as we talked about south carolina has when you have that game against clemson built in on a yearly basis and you have a crossover against bama that's that's brutal. Uh, from from yeah. a, a luck of the draw variable standpoint that South Carolina could have, I think 
a lot of people would be surprised to see like, oh, well, how would you how would you say that an East team has the toughest schedule in the SEC as opposed to a West team? Well, when you look at those those factors and you kind of you know you, you play out some of the some of the stuff with with who they have in conference play and all that stuff and you know where they're going to get them, you know you got to go to Georgia and, and all that. I, I get it from that standpoint, but to me, like we, we spend a lot of time talking about strength of schedule when really this stuff plays itself out. Yeah, it without does. a doubt, without a doubt. Um, I mean, yeah, and again, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and defend Bama's schedule for being super difficult. I, I said this on Twitter yesterday, and I kind of said it as a joke, but there's, there is some truth to it. No matter, a lot of you will, will look at me or roll your eyes when I say this as like me being a homer, but being objective, there's some truth to this, and the fact that one of the reasons Bama's schedule is easier is easier than 13 other teams in the SEC is because they don't have to play Bama. Just, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, bottom absolutely. line. Yeah. So, you know, but again, I'm not, not going to completely defend the schedule because you look at the two biggest, two toughest games they have all year, probably LSU and, and A&M, and they have a bye week before both. My thing with the South Carolina strength of schedule is not, not saying they, they have an easy uh, schedule at all. I'm just surprised that when we make the argument, because for the most part, the argument's been they have to play Clemson, they got to play Bama, and they got to play Georgia. And that is a nightmare. Like, that is an absolute nightmare of a schedule to play. However, when you look, not just take a step back and look literally in the same conference, Auburn, Auburn has to play Georgia, Auburn has to play Bama, um, Auburn has to play LSU and A&M and opens Absolutely up with Oregon. Too. But again, if the main argument is, well, you know what, Carolina's going to play Clemson, they got to play Georgia, and they got to play Alabama, which are two, or I'm sorry, three of the top four teams in the country, maybe the top three um, overall in the country. You know who Probably, else has yeah. to do literally that? Is AM. AM has to play that exact those exact same teams, all three of them, and on top of that, still has to go to the other Death Valley and play at LSU. Um I, I just I was surprised that nobody is bringing this up at all because I think we when we look at it, Georgia's ranked second on here. This is again from CBS and AM's third. I just I think it's a little bit outrageous to assume that just because their their non-conference game is against Clemson and their crossover game is against Bama, Carolina autom- automatically has the toughest schedule in the conference. I mean, A&M, it's, I don't think it's even close. We're going to get every coach in the SEC basically claim that they have the toughest schedule oh, yeah. in America. Um, I look forward to, to definitely getting that. Our peak off-season content of the week. Who, who came up with this on Facebook? Because this, oh, this is a good. really good idea. Yeah, so this is from Bobby Burchins, a friend of mine from high school. Um, he's really, he actually helped us out a little bit last year with SDS. He's, he's a really funny guy. So we, we posted in the Facebook group, uh, which I want to give you guys a little heads up. We started a SDS podcast Facebook group. Yes. Um, it is invite only. No big deal. Yeah. There's not like a secret password or anything like that. It's not invite only necessarily. It's no, a you can request. Yeah. You request. It's yeah. a closed group. So I should have said invite only. It's a closed group. We want all of you to join. Literally all of you to join. Um, where we can talk about all things football throughout the season, talk about stuff like you know the fourth and wrong questions or anything else when it's not just in the window of time that we're us recording the podcast. So make sure you go to Facebook and join that. It is just the Saturday Down South podcast uh, Facebook group. So Bobby Burton's posted this uh, yesterday. We were talking about fourth and wrong questions. And the question was this that he posed. Um, what, what would each SEC coach's alternate career be if football was never involved? It's a great question. Yeah. It's a really good question. So we, we broke this down. I did the East. You did the West. Would you like to start or would you like me to go first? You go ahead. All right. Let's start with Dan Mullen. 
because high school math teacher fits him very, very well. Ooh. He'd be way too into it. He'd probably come up with some some dumb songs to remember the formulas. Like I could picture Dan Mullen teaching calculus and being like the most excited person in the room and like trying to get everybody like way too into it. Like I just, the dance on the sideline with Felipe Franks, he'd be doing that, but with some sort of calculus jingle in his head. Um, I think that kind of speaks for itself. He seems like a numbers guy. He gets a little bit of the rap for the whole like, you know, not as is is considered like a gritty football looking dude. Right. Um, is that is that a fair that a fair? Uh, thing yeah, I mean, it? he's he's definitely a pleated a pleated khaki type guy. I, I, all the pleated khakis, yeah. I will say, yeah. Bobby. I want to read Bobby's answer. Just and this is the only one that I'll that I'll add in there. He said a new age non-denominational preacher who tries too hard to relate to kids by making up awkward Jesus themed covers of rap songs. Oh yeah, yeah, I can see that. No. I can definitely see that. Um, yeah, I don't know if if Dan Mullen's really. I don't think he's really a spiritual guy. I mean, not to get like too. No, I, I think like just that, it's mainly but, the the. I could easily see him writing down some some bad cover songs. He's like he's like the guy from uh, what's his name? Not Cal, Cam from from the Bachelorette. But no, I think you're spot on though with the with the math teacher. All right, what about this one? Kirby Smart, um, a Waffle House franchise owner. He'd basically be Sean Tui from The Blind Side. Yeah, I would that or Chick Fil A. You're spot on with that. That's really good. Yeah. Um, Mark Stoops, this is a little bit too obvious. He, he'd be a bank owner, um, as we know. Uh, it would be the, the put your money in this bank. Put your money in this uh, bank. The tagline, that, that would go super super viral. He and Bo Pelini would be very, very rich doing that, um, and I don't really think there's any questions about it. Yeah. He wouldn't have any neck tattoos, though. He would have to you never avoid know. the neck tattoos for that. Well, you know. He's working for point. himself. Uh, Barry Odom. This, this is like kind of the default answer, and I, uh, we, we did this with two guys, but I think with Barry Odom, it fits a little bit more, and I can explain it. High school gym teacher. Um, he already has his master's in education. Um, people forget he actually did like the, he was like the director of uh, personnel back like 10 years ago for, for Gary Pinkle back in the day. So like he's a guy that could basically handle a lot on his plate, and not to say that high school gym teacher is the most like crazy chaotic job in the world, but Barry Odom just seems, you look at Barry Odom, you could see him with the whistle and you could see him, you know, like kind of not half-heartedly giving out instructions, but not like an intense in your face over the top. Because that's what high school gym teachers do. I mean, they're usually relatively relaxed and they, you know, maybe he'll teach like weightlifting or something like that. Right. I don't know. Anytime you can get like a collared shirt that you tuck into like Adidas like swoosh pants, that's, mm-hmm. that's a solid move. That's, that, that would be his go-to look. You're right. Speaking of that, Will Muschamp, personal trainer. Um, can you picture that guy yelling at you in the gym? Because I definitely could. And you would want to lift more just out of pure fear, I think, with, with Will Muschamp more than anything else. He'd probably get a whiteboard and smash it. And he would get so in your face on that last rep, um, you would have no choice but to get that bench press up. That's okay. just what I see him as. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. Now I'm a little bit upset because now we, we do have a lot of similar ones. That's good, okay. though. That's good. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt, Judge. Uh, guy who is not about BS, um, his honesty in a courtroom would be great. And you know that, like, if you got like the juvie kids or something like that, Jeremy Pruitt is kind of good at telling it like it is. Um, people forget, actually, they don't forget that he was a kindergarten teacher. Not that he would get what? kindergarten kids in his court. Um, yeah, Aaron Murray pointed that out back in the day. Remember? Or that was that was the whole thing that came up with the Aaron Murray thing. Aaron Murray didn't point it out, but Jeremy Pruitt responded with, "Oh yeah, I was a kindergarten teacher." Um, but anyways. I think that he would do really well in a courtroom. I could see him rocking the robe, and he's, maybe he gets out his cheater glasses on every once in a while. <laughs> see, I, uh, I just but if he didn't know what asparagus was, I can't get over that for him to be a well, person in power. That. You know, 
they would, they would explain there's not going to be any court court cases involving asparagus unless it's somebody like I choked on asparagus, but I think he'd be able to figure out with context clues what it was. Okay, just saying. Uh, last one for me, Derek Mason. This is a little bit too easy. Kind of does this anyway. Motivational speaker. That guy can captivate a room, um, maybe as well as anybody in the SEC, just in terms of the way that he comes across, the message that he gives. I remember even after that that Notre Dame thing that he's like, it was very believable what he said about last year, like not being afraid of Notre Dame because we play in the SEC, all that. But he said it with such a, a ferocity and such a believability, in my opinion. Right. Like he could have, he could have like motivated a lot of people that day to think like, oh yeah, I'm going to pencil in Vanny to to beat Notre Dame, and then actually, you know, they actually almost they did really so. well, yeah. Yeah, I would have said really cruise well. so, ship event coordinator. I feel oh, like he would be good. really good at that's that. Good. Just be like, all right, Dang. guys, tonight we have shuffleboard, we have dinner, and then a limbo contest. I feel like Derek Mason would be really good. And then at that. he would do the he would do the limbo too because yeah. we, as we know, he can dance. Yeah, yeah that's good. And too. I think I mean right. with the judge thing, I don't I don't think that Pruitt's necessarily bad, but you would know, be a really good, not even just like a, not a judge like in a court of law, but like a judge that's like says like little clever quips all the time in like some kind of movie, Jimbo. Oh, Jimbo would be good, but he'd be he'd be talking way too fast. I feel yeah. like he'd be better as a lawyer than he would as a judge. Like, what, would you sentence me to what? Like, All right, bye. <laughs> um, so so I did I did the the West, um, and Saban. I've said this for a long time, and we're not going to get into politics or anything like that. But POTUS, I was originally going to say like CEO of a company, maybe something that's like needs a lot of attention to detail, like pharmaceutical stuff or like you know like what Allie does like planning out hospitals i don't really know what she does to be honest um saban wouldn't wear any maga hats too he does saban's not a hat guy he wouldn't wear we any pantsuits either which is also a plus to be honest Good point. i just think that no matter what he would have a plan he would have a plan in place and you know i think if he if we disagree with the plan maybe he would just put the fear of god in somebody by screaming at him um i don't know if we need that or not but i, I feel like from like a process standpoint a plan standpoint He'd be really good. He'd be a really good candidate. I'm on board. Uh, yeah. Malzon. So I said pit crew mechanic, um, like for like NASCAR. Or okay. I like I like your second. Okay, one the second one is better. I, I'm gonna say air traffic controller. Yeah, yeah. The orange he already wears anyways. So. Well, yeah, and he's always waving his hands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a lot of a lot of his like signals, like when he like signals in a play, it's it's involves a lot of hand motions. Um, so I would say that. So the Chad Morris thing. Wait, real quick on Melzon. There's a jet sweep joke in there. I just haven't. Oh yeah, jet blue yeah. sweep. Oh, there you go. Nailed That's it. it. There you go. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really know if I if he'd be up in the tower or if he'd be like down on like the runway because I don't want to say like yeah you'd be working the runway. I don't know if that's a great job, but I feel like that's probably where it'd be to be honest. Uh, let's see here because organization and planning ahead not really his thing. You- Chad Morris. So I think this the the pit crew mechanics is is a lot better here. I think this fits a lot more for Chad Morris. Okay, because you originally had one that's like I, yeah, this is four sentences long. I was gonna give Bobby a shout out and, and read his, um, but I didn't really get it. I'll be honest. And the other, I like okay. this answer for Mullen better anyway. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna say pit crew mechanic mainly because like anytime you can have a job where you get to work fast, you get to work real fast, and you also instead of like a lunch break. You're just drinking a Monster Energy drink. I know he's a Red Bull guy, but I could easily Definitely see him Bull making guy. the transition into Monster Energy drinks. Um, I, I mean, I feel like he would crush it at, at being like a pit crew mechanic. Uh, let's see here. I'm gonna save. I'm gonna save Cocho because he's obviously my favorite. Uh, okay. Let's see here. Joe Moorhead. I mean, 
You asked me if that was a cop-out. This is the first one I wrote down. Literally the first one I wrote down. PE coach. There's no person yeah. on this list that from a body standpoint is built more like a high school PE coach or middle school. I don't know. Like he just seems like he probably played some level of organized sports, maybe into high school, knows a lot about sports. Like it'd be great to have a new trivia team, but probably, I mean, didn't play at like a super high level, just knows a lot about sports. And well, played quarterback in Germany. Let's let's not forget about that. Don't bring up Germany. Not on this podcast. Um, not a Saban. That was Saban's president. But he he just kind of screams at the kind of person to be like, all right, guys, how's your day going? Everyone line up on two teams. We're gonna play gotcha for the next forty five minutes, and then just I can see sits that. down. You know what I mean? Like on a, on a, I guess I don't know, like a bench or a physio ball or something. He's perfect for PE coach. Uh, Matt Luke, State Farm agent. Yep. I mean, I was that I would say be sales because he's like, he's like a likable guy. He he's likable enough, and I don't mean this in a rude way, Matt Luke, but he's likable enough to where y- you don't mind being in a conversation with him, but you definitely don't want to be in in a long conversation with him. Not somebody you'd seek out for conversation, but you know, if you get into a fender bender or you need to bundle your home and auto, he'd be he'd be great. He would he would look out for you. He's a really nice he, guy. He'd be a good small talk guy. Yeah, I see what you're getting at there. This weather, huh? <laughs> Can't be too careful. <laughs> um, how many miles are on that Cadillac? So I would say that, that one fits pretty well. Jimbo, televangelist. Yeah, you nailed that one. I, I mean, he, he could get you to believe anything. Also, you know, I could easily see him being like putting his hand, like his palm on someone's forehead and being like, the power through me. And like, you know, like, you're healed. And then when someone is like, hey, that's, that's not real. That person was walking the whole time. He could just talk his way out of it. Be like, yeah, let's go get some lunch. How about that? So televangelist, hands down. Coach Orgeron. Man, just a man of many talents. You came up with like 12 for this. Yeah. So professional strongman. Mm-hmm. I was going to say CrossFit instructor um, until you had the, the must champ thing. Alligator wrestler. I think those are all things he would definitely do and do well. However, drill sergeant in the military is another one. Um, like thinking like the military is too soft, needs to be tougher, that kind of thing where he'd possibly get in trouble later. But... The absolute winner for, for Ed Orgeron's other career, scared straight officer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see him doing that. That would be... I don't know necessarily if he's the type that would make somebody just humiliated. Because he doesn't seem like that type of guy. But at the same time, I could also see him setting the right type of tone that would be needed for that situation, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, like, there's no chance that at least... 80% of the kids in juvie would not be reformed, probably just because they wouldn't want it to be yelled at them by anymore. That show is scary. I yeah. watched an episode of that and was like, okay, there's just never going to have kids so that there's no possibility that this ever happens. Um, yeah, those were good. Those are really good. Thank you. Thank you for that question. We can get great questions like that from our Facebook group. Make sure that you join or ask us to join, and we will let you in. Um, it's, it's, it's not invite only. We will just, just request yeah, my bad. We'll, we'll let you in. Uh, that's all right. So we recorded a great interview with Jacob Hester, uh, former LSU star, current SEC network radio host. He, he's all over the airwaves. He does a little bit of everything now. Uh, former national champ as well. Talked yeah. a little bit, a bit about that as well. 
Uh, I think, th yeah, this was our first time having Jacob Hester on, which is kind of crazy because I feel like our paths have crossed at a lot of different points. But, um, yeah, recorded a really good interview with him. So without further ado, here is Jacob Hester. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former LSU star and current radio host, Jacob Hester. He hosts his own show, Hanging with Hester, and he's all over the airwaves on ICC Network, Sirius XM channel. Uh, Jacob, quick question that I've been wanting to ask you for a while that I, for whatever reason, have never been able to. Are you and Devin Hester related? <laughs> That's first cousin. Uh, Devin Hester is what I like to call him at uh, family events. No, it's so funny. I, I get called Devin Hester more than you would think. And no matter where I go, they'll <laughs> say it. And then they'll think of what they just said. And then they'll correct themselves. And it, it's so funny. I met him at the ESPYs one year. And I was telling the story. I'm like, I'm sure you get you know, Jacob Hester a lot as well, right? He's like, no, never. I was like, yeah, I was kind of just being sarcastic. <laughs> I didn't really think that you ever got called Jacob Hester. And so it, it was funny. And uh, one thing I do remember, we played them in the 2000, I think it was 2005 Peach Bowl. And he was kind of playing all over the place for Miami. And that was a game where I was a fullback uh, up until that point. And, uh, you know, it was promised I'd, I'd play running back later on in my career or whatever. But we had like four guys get injured there was a guy missed a pass protection a guy had fumbled the football and so coach miles puts me in at running back in that game and i had some success scored uh, a touchdown and the news uh, or the paper the next day had the wrong hester showed up as like the headline i'm like oh man that, that, that doesn't sound <laughs> oh, good wow. and so Savage. uh yeah so he said he he said he remembered that but he didn't uh, ever get called jacob pastor i'm like yeah you had a little bit better career than me so it's okay it evened out <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up the the position thing because um, when somebody asks you what position you played, what do you say? I, I always think that it'd be one of the coolest things to say, like, "Oh yeah, I was an LSU tailback." But then again, I, saying that you're a fullback is kind of the ultimate "don't mess with me" card to be able to play to somebody. So, what do you say when somebody asks you that? So that is a great question and a great point. Uh, look, I, I, I typically say. I typically say uh, running back in college because, look, I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to start two years at tailback at a place like LSU and very proud of the fact that uh, during a time when there's a lot of great running backs in the SEC, I, I tricked my way into getting second-team All-SEC uh, as a running back. But uh, at the end of the day, man, I, I was able to block for Daniel Thomason, Darren Sproles, Nosha Marino, and a lot of really good running backs, Ryan Matthews in the NFL, and uh, that's something that, that I hold to a high standard for myself because the fullback position, man, it, it's not one that you get a lot of praise. The only time you get noticed is if you mess up or miss a block, and uh, it was <laughs> something where I kind of had to challenge myself, man. I had to stay up at, and, and wait. I would have to wake up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and drink a protein shake just so I can make weight because in the NFL, a lot of people know that you get fined if you're you know overweight. They don't know that you get fined if you're underweight as well and so what? you have a weight you have to make yeah i was playing fullback at the time when i was playing for the chargers and so man I, my wife would have to make me like snacks in between meetings and it was a deal i got fined twice for being underweight and i was like okay i'm not losing thousands <laughs> of dollars yeah. anymore for being underweight so i'm gonna eat everything i can if i've got a bad body nor i'm sorry it's all on you brother that's been my mindset for the past couple of years, too, so I'm glad somebody else gets it. <laughs> oh, exactly. I wish, so, I, I, I wish I had that now. I wish that I could eat, and uh, it would be a positive thing. Now it's one of those things where, like, hey, you don't play football anymore. You're large, but you need to lose some weight. <laughs> so, so you won a national title with Les, but it was Saban who recruited you, and ultimately, you know, who you played under your freshman year. 
So for those of us who haven't experienced what this is like, which is, you know, like 99.9% of the world and even some five stars don't even know what this is like, but can you explain the experience of getting recruited by Nick Saban? Uh, he's relentless, I'll tell you that. And so I was a guy that was committed, actually, to the University of Texas early in my recruiting process, kind of before LSU had really put the full-court press on. And, you know, they had a ton of running backs, man. They had Justin Vincent, and he had just won the uh, player of the game in the SEC championship and the national championship that year. They had Joseph Adai, who was later a first-round pick. I mean, they had a ton of guys, Ali Broussard, uh, Sauron Carey, on and on. And, uh, you know, they were a little bit later getting in the recruiting process. But once they were, I mean, Saban was relentless. It wasn't an assistant coach calling. It wasn't a coordinator calling. Coach Saban was the guy doing the recruiting. And he would just talk about the value of being from Louisiana and going to LSU. And once I really knew that they had a game plan in place for me uh, and his recruiting style, like I mentioned, I mean, I'm talking relentless. It didn't matter what he was doing. It didn't matter the scenario that was going on. He was going to make sure that phone call was made. Uh, he came to one of my soccer games when I was in high school. It's funny. We averaged about six fans a game, and then Saban shows up. We got over 2,000 fans showed up to a high school <laughs> soccer game in Freeport. And, man, it, I don't know. Look, obviously, you got to put on the, the, the face every day when you're recruiting. But even if it was a fake face, I believed every word that Nick Saban was saying. And, look, he never gave up. He didn't care that – I was committed somewhere else. He didn't care how many running backs they had. He didn't care anything. Like he, you know, mentioned it that when he came to campus to recruit me, uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, he was honest with me. He's like, hey, I came to see John David Booty, who ended up going to USC. I came to see, you know, two or three other guys that ended up going to Ole Miss and places like that. He said, I'll be honest, when I came here today, I didn't, I didn't know who you were. And I, when he left that day, I was actually the only player that he offered that day. And so he's got a unique style of recruiting. You know, just because a recruiting service throws a five-star ranking on you, he doesn't care. Just because – I was a, look, I was a two-star recruit. I was 795th player in the country, and Nick Saban did not care about that. He trusted his eyes. He trusted what he saw uh, at a spring football practice, right? And so just everything about his recruiting style to me, it was upfront. It was relentless. Uh, and there's a lot of times when you can – uh, you know, stretch the truth in recruiting, but I felt like he was honest with giving me the truth. He said, hey, you'll play two years at fullback, you'll play two years at tailback. And even though he wasn't there, it's funny. That's exactly how it worked out. Jay, we're going to talk about the Shreveport thing uh, a little bit later because <laughs> one of the hosts on this podcast is not necessarily allowed back in that city. But regardless, moving forward, uh, piggybacking off the Saban theme, the coaching staff he had at LSU has been highlighted a bazillion times with his assistant coaches now becoming head coaches which of those assistant coaches will be the first to beat him and why? Oh, man, what a great question. And it was such a good staff, and you're exactly right. I mean, when you look at that, having Jimbo Fisher, having Derek Dooley, Will Muschamp, I mean, Kirby Smart, I mean, you can go on and on about, you know, the coaching that we were able to get in uh, 2004. It's, it's really amazing. And a funny story is uh, Coach Saban actually tried to get me to play both ways when I first got to LSU until – I was uh, you know, learning Jimbo Fisher's offense, and then Kobe Smart was staying late with me every single night because I was trying to learn the safety position as well. Wow. He, he didn't have to give me the time that he did. I know Coach Saban asked him to, but my man would stay extremely late with me during training camp, a time when a lot of people are trying to get any rest that they can get. And uh, I've always been very appreciative of Kirby of that. And 
to me, there, you know, obviously there's a couple of candidates when you ask that question. Kirby Smart, Georgia, what they're doing, man, they're, they're coming. I mean, they're there already. They just got to finish a game against Alabama. They're a team that's only going to get better. A lot of people call that a sleeping giant for a long time. So, obviously, Kirby Smart's going to be the first name that comes to mind. And, look, Jimbo Fisher's doing things at A&M. It's no secret, right? Uh, this year, their schedule might be the hardest in the country. And so, they might not have the win total that uh, you would expect to make a big jump. They might have the same. Or, actually, they might have fewer wins this year because of the schedule. But, obviously, that's a team, I think, a lot of Jimbo Fisher that has a chance playing Alabama every year, being in the SEC West, getting multiple chances. Obviously, Georgia typically doesn't play Alabama unless it's in a championship scenario. So A&M might actually get that first win just because they are going to have more chances at Alabama. So we'll see. I mean, it's, it's an impressive record that Coach Saban's been able to have against his assistants. But sooner or later, even the great one, Nick Saban, will lose uh, to one of his assistants. One of the great landmark moments in the SEC in the 21st century is, is Saban – you know, the announcement that came on, on Christmas Day 2004 where Saban uh, announces that he's he's going to the Dolphins, he's leaving LSU. Take me back to what it was like being in that program that day and as somebody who grew up in Louisiana and realizing kind of what all that meant and understanding like, oh man, like we're, we're watching one of the great coaches in this sport leave and potentially change the path of our futures. Yeah, so look, we all realized how special the coach he was, obviously, because LSU had won the national championship the year before. A lot of those players were still on the team that next year, and you realize, you know, how good of a coach he was. And you probably knew it was only going to get better because it was only getting better at LSU. And also, we weren't upset that he left. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, realizing that the Miami Dolphins and that kind of organization was his dream job, look, you're never going to be mad at a coach for trying to get to the peak of the coaching carousel and the, the NFL is that right. And so when you have that opportunity, it'd be selfish for you to be mad. I look, I'll be honest. All of us were wishing him the best, hoping that he had a long, great NFL career. And I'll also say we were all very surprised when he only stayed in the NFL for two years. And then he came back and was coaching against Alabama our senior year, right? We didn't think <laughs> when he left us after our freshman year that he'd be coaching against us at Alabama, you know, only a couple of years later. So that was probably, a bigger surprise than when he actually left to take the Dolphins job. Your best Les Miles story. Go. <laughs> Man, that, that that is a question that I get a lot. And there's so many so many to go between. But I tell you what, I, it, a lot of people would kind of go quirky. They'd go with a funny story. But I, I always point to when he first got to LSU in 2005, it was about the worst-case scenario that you could have. Hurricane Katrina hit right before the season. We're supposed to play North Texas before, uh, you know, the opening game of the season, before we played Arizona State at home. North Texas game gets canceled. Arizona State gets moved from Baton Rouge to Tempe, Arizona, basically a week before the game. Tennessee game gets moved from a Saturday in Duck Valley to a Monday. And just the way that Coach Miles handled that, it was amazing. It's from, from that moment on, I respected him more than anybody else in this world for the way he handled that. Look, he, I, when football, when we were practicing, he'd say, okay, when we're in here, when we're inside of the white lines, we focus on football. When we're done with this, it is about your family. It's about the state of Louisiana. Football becomes secondary at that point. You make sure every single person that you're worried about is taken care of. If your families have to stay in your dorm rooms, you do it. We are going to be pillars of the community. Every single one of you is going to pass out water and food and help in some way you can. And, look, he's not from Louisiana. Everybody knows he's a Michigan man. That's where he played football. 
He had just come from Oklahoma, and he took Louisiana under his wing from day one, and that meant the most to us being from Louisiana. Like LSU, 90% of us were from LSU. We had, you know, my roommate was former LSU All-American, Craig Stouts. His family was from New Orleans. They were all staying in our dorm room because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And Coach Miles literally made it the best-case scenario that it could be in such a tragic situation. And so I've always been very appreciative of how he handled that. And obviously, look, there's the, the great moments as well, obviously winning a national championship and Coach Miles eating grass and kind of all the quirks that we know, the Mad Hatter nickname, which is a special moment. Uh, obviously, the five-for-five five game uh, going forward on fourth down against Florida where he got that nickname is something I'll never forget. But from day one, Coach Miles earned my respect because of how he treated Louisiana. That's awesome. That is awesome. We're still kind of hoping for a funny story, but that's, I mean, that is When I answer that question, it typically gets like, man, that's great. Man, I really hoped for a grass eating story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, but you and you kind of alluded to it with the uh, the five for five game. I'll never forget where I was watching that. That was incredible. Um, that two thousand seven season, man. LSU had some absolutely incredible games. What was your favorite game from that season? And please, for the love of God, don't say the Bama game where we had a touchdown lead with less than three minutes to go and somehow still lost by seven. <laughs> Obviously, that game was big. Uh, you know, winning that one for Coach Miles because of all the talk. Pre-game was about Coach Saban, uh, but that's not a game we played great in. We had so many penalties. We had a ton of turnovers, so that's not a game that I like to go back and reflect on. And to be cliche, it'd be to say the Florida game. And so I'll spare you that one. I won't say the Florida game, even though that game will never probably be topped in my book. And I'll point to another game. I'll point to the Tennessee SEC championship game because that's a game that we could have folded. We could have said, hey, we just lost to Arkansas our last home game. We were the number one team in the country. There's no way that the seven things that have to happen for us to get back into it are going to happen. We were out with uh, Matt Flynn didn't play that game, so we were without our starting quarterback. Ryan Perilou actually started that game. There's like ten things. Coach Miles, if you remember, uh, Kirk Herbstreit came out and said he was going to take the Michigan Michigan job. And so that Right, and so that was that morning. And so imagine, you know, being uh, a college kid and seeing that me and Matt Flynn are sitting in our hotel room. We see that come across the screen. And what's funny is we didn't believe it because if it would have been true, Coach Miles would have told us before. He was so big on talking to his leaders and the uni councils, what he called it, every single day that we would have known before it broke news. So it's funny, we actually didn't believe it. But still, it was newsworthy because it was coming across the screen. And for all that stuff to go on before the game, to go in, you know, with, you thought, nothing on the line, no national championship on the line. And we went out there and we played as hard as if we had a chance to go back to the national title and to win that game with a backup quarterback, everything against you, all the news circuits saying the coach is going to leave you. That game is a game that I point to and said, okay, this is why the 2017 won a national championship because of moments like this. Look, we were much more talented in 2006 at LSU, and we won a Sugar Bowl but didn't win a national championship. But the 07 team had something about it that wasn't going to be denied. It didn't matter the scenario. They were going to show up Saturday and play the same exact way. That's a good point. So along the lines of that 07 team, what was the cooler achievement for you, winning a national championship or getting drafted number 69 overall in the NFL draft? <laughs> man, uh, yeah, that's what you do, man. Uh, yeah, that, that being selected 69th overall is obviously pretty cool. But, uh, no, man, winning a national championship, there, there's, there's a lot of teams each and every year that have the talent to win a national championship. But you've got to have the perfect formula. Like, we lost two games. We lost both those games in triple overtime. And so we had a unique season. But, man, you got to stay healthy. you got to have the ball bounce the right way. 
and it's too hard to win a national championship. Look, I realize Alabama and Clemson may be bucking what I just said, but it is extremely hard to win a national championship, especially in the SEC. It is so tough to go through that schedule to get to that point, to win an SEC championship, and then have enough juice to beat another team like an Ohio State like we did in 07. And so my NFL career was outstanding. I got a chance to play with two outstanding quarterbacks, Philip Rivers and Peyton Manning, but you can never take a championship team away. And so 07 championship, to me, is just one of those things that you, you can't ever top it. Jacob, that was just my way of trying to get you to say, yeah, I got like a, a thousand people texting me nice after I was picked number 69 overall. <laughs> hey, um, I tell you but what, that's I okay. Tell you I what, and I almost went there. And if it, if it would have been like post-Gronk era, it would have been much cooler True. than it was back in 2008. Yep. So Gronk was still in college. And so I, if it would have been you know, after Gronk, I would have been much cooler. <laughs> you want to talk about just a pioneer and you know revolutionary person for the game. Way to go, Gronk. <laughs> Um, so this is brought up, this is brought up last week to Connor. It's something we've discussed a little bit with the pod is with all the offseason talk. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about what's going on at Florida, uh, or not, or just players entering the transfer portal in general, which SEC team has not necessarily lost this offseason, but which SEC team is winning the offseason? Yeah, the transfer portal is something, obviously, that, that you never know where it's going to go. And it's a slippery slope, and you wonder if the NCAA is going to change some of the rules. And you mentioned Florida, and they've got two 2019 guys already in the portal. It comes out today that Kelvin Joseph from LSU, a five-star recruit, has put his name in the portal as only a sophomore. And so it's something that, man, it seems like every day when you open up you know, ESPN or, or another site, you know, Saturday Down South, it seems like you know, there's another name that's put in the portal. And so I, I think a lot of teams are losing a lot of talent. And, and uh, you look at Mississippi State, they just lost a ton of talent to the NFL draft. And so for me, I guess a, a team that's winning the offseason right now, uh, it, it'd be hard. It'd be the team that hasn't been put into the transfer portal, right? It's who has got the least amount of guys that are put into that situation where they could transfer. And so there's a lot of teams that are having, you know, off seasons that they wish they could get some guys out of the portal. Obviously, when you look at who's having the best offseason, uh, that's a tough call because you look at a team like LSU. LSU came in and not being a homer pick here, but they were a team that had to have some guys going to the transfer portal because they were over numbers, right? They needed some guys to maybe look at other places. And so, to me, it's a team that didn't lose a lot of talent. You look at Alabama, you look at LSU, uh, you look at a Texas A&M, their team that's uh, been able to hold on to a bunch of their guys as well. So, maybe – uh, that's a hard question to answer because you have had so many guys put themselves in a transfer situation within the SEC. So with your, your current gig now, you have a front row seat to this current LSU team. And I, I remember we talked the day that Joe Oliva's exit happened. It just kind of out of out of coincidence. And it was before Scott Woodward had accepted the job to ultimately become the LSU AD. And we were kind of speculating about that. But, you know, now that this has happened, I, I guess what I'm interested in finding out from you, do you get a, the, the sense that there's this feeling around Baton Rouge that there's now a, a different kind of pressure under Coach o to win now, especially that he's got this new boss? Uh, I don't think so, and that was the question from day one. It's like, oh man, Scott Woodward hired Jimbo Fisher at A&M. Jimbo was, you know, he's been at LSU for a long time. His name was tied before Coach O, and obviously for a week that was all you heard. But look, honestly, in Baton Rouge, I mean, it's been a, a total change in, in all season. Last all season, it was uh, Coach O's got the hottest hot seat in the SEC, maybe the entire country. Well, they went out and they, you know, win a Fiesta Bowl. They beat a Georgia team. They have these big wins, and all that has changed. 
locally the landscape is completely different. And that was more national media or regional media saying, you know, is Jimbo Fisher going to be in? Is the Coach O pressure going, uh, going to be higher? And it hasn't been, man. I think people are excited about where the program's at. Uh, I think anytime you have, you know, big hits in recruiting, that obviously helps during the all season. It helps that narrative. Anytime that, you know, they finished top five recruiting class for 2019, they're number two right now in 2020. So that helps a lot of that narrative. And look, when you start looking at the schedule, it's not as brutal as it was a year ago. And then True. you've got a lot of veteran guys coming back. You've got, you've got a quarterback coming back to LSU. And this is the most excited, if you really think about it, this is probably the most excited that fans and supporters and everybody's been since Jamarcus Russell at the quarterback position. Because Matt yep. Flynn, who won a championship, let's not forget, that was his only year as a starter. Jordan Jefferson, everybody had question marks every single year. Zach Mettenberger, his second year was better, much better than his first year. And so they didn't have a chance to get as excited. Danny Etling, I'm higher on Danny Etling than a lot of people were, but fans weren't excited about Danny Etling. And so – I mean, we can go Jared Lee. I mean, we can roll through Anthony Jennings, Brandon Harris. I mean, we can roll through every quarterback. This is the most excited and probably the best standing LSU's had as a returning quarterback since 2006 offseason. So it's been well past a decade, and that goes a long way in Baton Rouge because you know, I know, everybody knows that's always the question mark at LSU every offseason. Who's going to be the quarterback, and is he going to be worth a damn? Well, I mean, we were originally we were going to get you to do the Coach O impression, but as we've uh, now learned, he hates those, which is something that has ruined my entire world. Um, regardless, so we've talked about this before, and we're definitely going to talk about the quarterback thing in a second, but kind of, again, piggybacking off the Coach O question, where do you think he ranks currently with the SEC coaches? Because especially with this podcast, not the Tudor and Horn, we've been high on the Coach O train since before last season and don't think he gets near enough credit. Right. Where do you think he ranks – with the other current head coaches in the SEC. Right. And anytime you see these rankings, uh, it leaves a lot of debate. But I think he's right there close to the top. I mean, how do you not put him at the, at the top when you look at wins since he's taken over as an interim coach? I mean, it's right there towards the big boys. Obviously, look, Coach Saban's going to be at the top of that list. He's done way too much. He's won too many championships not to be. Um, but I, I think he's right there in the next group. I mean, when you look at – uh, yeah, obviously, Kirby getting to the SEC championship game, and Jimbo Fisher does have a national championship other places. But when you stack the wins together, I mean, yep. Coach O deserves to be in that next group. Uh, anytime I see these lists, and I see him, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth in the SEC, I'm like, guys, when you look at the record, when you look at the teams that they've beaten, how do you not put him towards the top? Does he Thank deserve you. to be in, in top spot? No, that that top spot is alone. It's alone for Nick Saban because Nick Saban's won SEC championships, he's won national championships. There's no debating that. But when I see a list of coaches, I saw one, no disrespect to Barry Odom at Missouri, I saw one that had him above Coach O, and I'm like, how can you, as a publication, put that out and feel good about it? When you look at their resume, when you look at their head-to-head meetings, I mean, Coach O was in them, and they blew the brakes off Missouri. And again, Missouri, to me, this year set up for actually a really nice season. I hope they get off probation because I think the schedule and the guys they have coming back, I like Derek Dooley in that OC spot. So it's nothing against Mizzou and Barry Odom, but I think it has more to do with the disrespect that Coach Ogeron gets. I mean, he should be right there in that group of Kirby Smart, Jimbo Fisher, Dan Mullen, whoever you want to put in that second group behind Saban, he absolutely deserves to be there. I agree, but I wish you didn't also appreciate a good Coach O impression. Go ahead, Connor. <laughs> hey, I told you, though, man, I, I'm, from, I'm from North Louisiana. It wouldn't be as good. My man's from the bayou, man. They, they uh They've got an accent that's completely different than uh, other parts of the state. So it wouldn't be a good one anyways. So there's a thing that we've talked about a lot. Speaking of, you know, the rankings that publications come out, 
I am much higher on Joe Burrow than Marler is. And based on your response, I think we already know what direction you are heading in. But tell me why I'm right about Joe, Mar- about Joe Burrow and why Marler needs to kind of get with the program here. Look, Joe Burrow got to campus last year on May 30th, and you saw what he was able to do a year ago, and he only got better as time went along, right? You look at the Texas A&M game, you look at the UCF game, that's who Joe Burrow can be. Joe Burrow is a guy that, when you look at what he was able to do in a short period of time as far as leadership, as far as on-the-field play, it's very impressive. And let's not forget, he graduated before he got to LSU. He's basically on a pro football schedule. Like he's got, he's got some master's classes that are online, only like one or two classes a day, whatever that is. He is basically 24-7 football. I mean, he takes a very NFL approach to what he is doing to get ready for this season. He did so last season as well. And I, I think just looking back at the last couple of games, too, I mean, he was able to run. Miles Brennan had a back ailment. We don't know exactly what it was, but he wasn't available some of these games. And we didn't know that. We didn't know that during the time. Even being as close to the situation as I was, I traveled with the team, and I had no idea that Miles Brennan was that banged up. So it was something they obviously had to keep secret. But you couldn't run Joe Burrow, and Joe Burrow can run the football. Is he going to go out there and run a 4-5? No, it's not who he is, but he can run the football. They can design quarterback runs, quarterback powers, quarterback sweeps. They can do all that, the read option with Joe Burrow. And so that's something that you weren't able to do because you didn't really have a backup a year ago. When you lose two transfers before the season, your backup's injured, you can't do it. But now you can. Now Miles Brennan is more comfortable in this new-look offense with Joe Brady. And now you can go out there and say, hey, you're a quarterback who can run. We are going to use that to our advantage. And so, man, I think Joe Burrow is going to be even better than he was at the end of last year, which I think was pretty damn good. You, Jacob, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, man. That I, I'm sitting in the back like the, the kid in church. Just just preach. I'm feeling the gospel right now. I'm all bored. <laughs> Connor, I don't, think the, I don't think the last thing we want to do is talk about these quarterback rankings that you had for the SEC. Whoa, 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 whoa. But that's, I respect both of your opinions, okay? Um, so who's another quarterback, though? With uh, in the SEC, they think will surprise some people this season. Not Joe Burrow, but somebody that's not necessarily from or Tua, but who another right. quarterback from the SEC that will surprise some people? I'm going to tell you a little bit of a curveball, I think. I think uh, with the news that Stevens comes from Penn State to Mississippi Ooh. State, reuniting with Joe Moorhead, I think that could be a game changer. No disrespect to Thompson, who's done nice things when he uh, stepped in for Fitzgerald, but Stevens coming over from Penn State. Look, what was the big knock on Joe Moorhead last year that he – wanted to run his offense with a quarterback who couldn't do it. Nick Fitzgerald was not that quarterback. Nick Fitzgerald had an outstanding career, but he was not Joe Moorhead's quarterback. Stevens is Joe Moorhead's quarterback, and if he can run that offense anything close to what uh, McSorley did at Penn State, that could be a sleeper for uh, the SEC. And it's a guy who is going to have to fight his way to be a starter. It's not his job by any means, but I think he wins that job. And I think he surprises a lot of people. Very topical. Very topical. We got one more for for you before we do Family Feud here. Just an overall realistic expectation for LSU. Are, are we talking repeat of last year? Are we talking repeat of your 2007 team? Or just kind of hope for nine wins and be and be happy to be relevant? Like, what what is the realistic expectation that LSU right. fans should have at this point going into 2019? I think 10 wins should be the expectation. And I think a lot of it hinges on week two in Austin, Texas. I mean, that is a gigantic game. I mean, when you look at the SEC schedule, you trade Georgia from last year to Vanderbilt this year, so you feel better about that. Uh, you've got some really nice home games. Obviously, you have to go on the road to Tuscaloosa. That's always going to be a dogfight. But you finally face Florida at home after going to Gainesville back-to-back year, so that's going to be a positive. When you look at week two, 
in Austin against Texas, that is really a crossroads. You go to Austin and you win that game, that propels you into one of the big boys. If you lose that game, it's going to be one of those years where you're fighting, trying to make up for that loss. And so, look, I think the expectation for LSU is 10 wins or bust. I think that a New Year's Six Bowl game is where you have to be considering who you have coming back, considering you made it to one a year ago with one of the toughest schedules in the country. So all eyes are going to be in Austin, Texas week two. Same thing with Texas A&M traveling to Clemson that week. All eyes are going to be on the Aggies that week to see what they do. So week two is going to tell you a lot about the SEC and the SEC West. Yeah, don't forget, Bama's got New Mexico State that week, so also a pretty big one. Um, Jacob, we're going we're gonna to get you out of here on uh, a little game I like to play, or we like to play on the show, called Family Feud. It's not really called that for a reason. It's just going to be 10 rapid-fire questions. You say the first thing that comes to your mind, um, and then we'll get you out on, on some points and see where you stand with some oh, of your great. peers as well. Are you ready? I feel like I could do really, really bad at this. Don't let me down here, Jacob. <laughs> all right here we go first question let's get the clock started and here we go if you were an office character who would you be uh never seen an episode in the office not oh a good start gosh. not a good start jacob not at all um second question start. Start. second question uh better hair peter burns or chris doring Ooh, uh, let's go CD, Chris Doring. He's got the side part. He's got the hard part there. I go Chris Doring. Very good answer. All right, that makes up for a little bit. Okay, third question. Better tailgate essential, barbecue or bourbon? Uh, bourbon, dark water, always. Very good answer. Uh, describe Death Valley in one word. Chaotic. Describe Coach O in one word. Energy. Ooh, chaotic would have been good too, but that's good. I like that. <laughs> um, hottest Disney princess. Ooh, uh, Jasmine. That's okay. Fantastic answer. Makes up for the first part. A lot the of first points. one you missed. A lot of points on that one. Give me a bucket list concert you want to go to. Mm, that's so good. Uh, bucket list concert. Uh, since it'd be bucket list, and let's just go like getting a time machine. I'd go to Sam Cooke, even though it's not possible now. I'd get I'd invent a time machine and go see Sam Cooke in person. That's a very very good answer. Very good answer. Okay, uh, who's the best player you ever played against? Patrick Willis, every day, wow. every day NFL, college, you name it. What Patrick if I just said Darren McFadden? Okay, uh, again, one of us is not allowed legally. Back in the city of Shreveport. We can't really talk about it. What is one reason that I should ask the city of Shreveport to allow me back in? That is a story I need to know. And just say, hey, I'm friends with Jacob Hester, and we'll get you back in. <laughs> Perfect. Ooh, All right. That's I like good. That. That's, that's really good. good. That carries a lot of weight. Okay, last but not least, who wins the SEC and who wins the Natty this year? Who wins the SEC and who wins the Natty? Uh, look, until until the champs are beat, I'll say Alabama, uh, and I think that it's much closer. And it, it, there's like four teams that could be right there in that discussion. The Natty will be whoever wins the SEC this year. Can I use that as a blanket answer? Ooh, I like weak, we'll, we'll but that. I like it. I do we'll like that. that. We'll that's fine. This year. Uh, let me let me tally these up right now. You, you did get you did not get a lot of credit for that first question about the office. So I'm going to give you 68 points, one shy. Of your overall draft number, but still, pretty nice number. Pretty nice number there, Jacob. Okay, I'm going to go back. I'll watch the office. Look, I've been in such a Game of Thrones mood. I've been uh, in, in a oh, lot of, gone of other that. series. Yeah, like Game of Thrones. Like, If you would have gone there, I could have gone any character you wanted to go with. Tyrion Lannister is the best character in TV history. 
Boom. Okay, hold on, real quick then, oh. real quick, because I, I I just caught up literally two episodes ago, just like on all eight seasons. So tell me what your thoughts were last night about the uh, the finale. Uh, I wasn't as disappointed as most people, but I did need more explaining. I, I needed to know more of what happens to them in the future. You've been following along for eight seasons. I need like right. even if it's the cheesy, like they come on screen afterwards and share the picture and say, This is what happened to A, this is what happened to B, this is what happened to C. I was like more explaining of what everybody did, where they ended up. You know, I'm gonna boost that I'm gonna boost that up. You got sixty nine points. That is a that is a high score. Very good. Go. Very good work, Jacob. Very nice. Jacob, uh, aka Devin Hester, uh, we appreciate you coming right. on. We're, we'll do this. We'll do this again really, really soon. Uh, wish you the best of luck in all your endeavors. We'll probably see you at SEC Media Days, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be there. All right, sounds good. Appreciate it, man. All right, guys. Anytime, man. Appreciate Jacob coming on. We're gonna have to talk more LSU with him. I was kind of realizing. I was like, you know. We talk LSU with Peter Burns, and I don't feel like we talk LSU extensively with anybody besides Peter Burns. So, I mean, we'll just rotate between those two guys and then get Coach O on eventually to talk LSU. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, really, really got to get him on very, very soon. Also, just to shout test out, to... out the theory you're oh, about yeah. the, or not, not your theory, but Jacob's theory about the impersonations thing. We got to clear the air on that. Shook my entire world. But shout out to Jacob Hester for also potentially. If I choose to do it, getting me back into the city of Shreveport. Yes. Uh, fingers crossed on that as well. Yes. That would be big, big news for us. I don't know why I'm included in that, but big news for us. Fourth and wrong. Let's get to it. So this week, as we do every week, we have four questions. They were, um, I think, all but one was submitted in our Facebook group, which, again, need to go to. Hintity Hinton. Yep. Um, fourth and wrong questions. We have four questions, not about football. They could be... You know, you seeking out advice as well. You, anything you want answered, uh, and we will go over it. So your first question from Chris Dick, and I think that the actual handle on Twitter is Chris Not a Dick, uh, oh, is what is the ultimate road trip song? That's your favorite song of all time. Life is a Highway by Rascal Flatts. Uh, that's a that's an air high five right here. That's good. I, I, you hate the Rascal Flats version. Rascal Don't lie. Flats is the worst. I didn't hear you say that. I was so excited you got it right. I know. Um, the Rascal Flats version is terrible. <laughs> that song, as as bad as it is, I love I love that song. Just not when they sing it. Uh, I would also say Tom Petty, Running Down a Dream. Yep, very yep. good song. Heard that the other day. Heard yeah. that like yeah, two three days ago. Um, uh, what's uh, the Proclaimers? Um, Born to Be. And I, I knew would that one. walk 500 oh. miles, and I would walk... No? I, I met your mother fans. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, also, Skinner, Call Me the Breeze. I don't want anything that's going to get stuck in my head necessarily for the next five days. So I wouldn't choose a one-hit wonder. Okay. Um, second enough. question. This is from Teresa Register Jurgens. Or Jurgens, I'm not sure. On Facebook, what are three items you refuse to buy in generic form? That's interesting. Um... I think generally with cereal you don't buy in generic form. I think you always always go for the name brand because the the generic store brand Frosted Flakes they're just not as good. They take yeah. out the one ingredient. I know they do that, but it, for whatever reason with cereal it just feels like it's magnified. That's the one that really kind of stood out with me. I don't know if there's a lot of other ones like I guess candy like you wouldn't get generic candy. Just go for the real thing. Give me the real Reese's yeah. bar. Like I, I I don't know like that to me. Those are the two ones that stand out, but I don't really have... I don't think I have three. Uh, tires. That's okay. a big one for okay. me. Um, let's see. 
What's the other one that's a big... Oh, this is going to sound dumb. You're, you're probably not going to appreciate this. But I will say uh, mechanical pencils. Probably not something that, that is involved in a lot of people's day-to-day. But that's all I write with is mechanical pencils. And there's very specific ones that I have to have. And there's a lot of times every year for Christmas, my mom will give me some. And they are the worst. Very flimsy. You know how I revoked your millennial, millennial card like a year ago? Yeah. Don't, I'm still not giving it back. I don't, I don't think have, I need it back. You have not yeah. earned it. No, I agree with that. Yeah. That's totally fair. Um, let's see. The third question. Now, Jake Stroud asked this, and he, he said specifically about college, but I want to throw this out to you since I know you're an avid bowler. Is, I, I am in a bowling league. This is true. Yeah. Is bowling a sport? I think it's a game. I think that it is in a different category, and that's not to say that it doesn't take some athletic ability, some skill, but I, I think it's a game. I think it's up there with, I think it's billiards, darts, bowling, uh, cornhole, bags, whatever whatever you call it. Um, I think it's in that category, and it's to include it in the same as like as basketball or baseball, or it's, it's just, it's a different type of skill game. Right. That's a really good way to put that. It's a Thank game, you. not a sport. I thought um, about it a lot. I would, I would probably agree with that because because let's 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 think like if you if the only sport you did was bowling, would you consider yourself an athlete? And that's what it comes down to for me. I mean, because there there are things that I don't know. There's a lot of these games you see like on ESPN two, like the one where like the, the kids like are all in college and they're not wearing shoes and they're like slamming a ball down to a little mini trampoline, whatever that is. Oh, spike ball. Yes. Okay. There's some things you have to do to be athletic to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Honestly, I think it just requires no shoes and a man bun. But football's more of a sport than than those, I would say, though. Yeah, I just I don't think that I, you have to be necessarily an athlete to be a bowler. But I guarantee, you, if I went out and bowled tomorrow, oh, I, I agree. My entire right side of my body would be like I wouldn't be able to move it. Yeah, like these people that we bowl with, we are by far the youngest people in this bowling league. Like everybody has been like in this league for twenty years, and they're all like forty five plus, and you know, they let's you know not to throw everybody under the bus because we're not one of the better teams, but like they're not athletes. No. They're they're good they're good at a game. They're very good at a game. It's like being the best at karaoke. No one really cares. You're not gonna make it big in singing, but good for you. That's awesome. Um you get, you get your one night to shine and you enjoy it. Exactly. Uh fourth and final question. This is from Dr. Robert Heider. Uh, or Hey Dare, I'm not really sure. Um Hair Bear. Favorite national fried chicken <laughs> and favorite local Fried chicken place for you. I mean, a favorite, a favorite national fried chicken place includes Chick Fil A. Then that's too obvious. Yeah, I won't go I think with that. Like fried obvious. chicken, fried chicken. Yeah, like I, I'm a Canes guy. Um, I'd probably go Canes above any other. Um, I just had PDQ for the first time, and I think that's kind of local to Florida. Yeah. Um, but that the one just opened by my house and had it, and it was really, really good. Um, I don't know. I'm not like a big Zaxby's guy. Um, People people love Bojangles. Bojangles is good. Don't get me wrong. I just I think I've only had it like once or twice. Right. I think that's that's kind of bad of me, but I don't I, I don't know. I don't I don't get into the the fried chicken as as much. I I'm a Chick Fil A man through and through. That's fair. Um, I would say Popeyes for a national. Chain. Oh, Popeyes counts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's um, right. Bojangles is best bad. fries too. Bojangles is, is is really good. Fun fact about Clemson. I don't know if they still do this, but they did when I used to go to games. Was if they score over twenty eight points, it's bow time. They don't. They can't do that anymore. Yeah, no, There's no way. Probably not. Um, but you get like some free thing from from Bojangles. I I think Popeyes is probably my number one. 
just because, oh, man, it's good. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but local, so I'm going to, you know, do too much like I always do. It says in Atlanta, I'm going to say Panko Chicken. It just opened up, okay. or they opened up another one uh, right across from me on West Peachtree. One of my friends, actually, uh, her family owns it. It's incredible. It's like the best fried chicken you'll ever have. But also in Colombia, if you can get yourself down to a Zesto's, that is some really good fried chicken. I've heard good things as well. Shout out to our editor, C. Wright. Hattie B's. Oh, yeah. Hattie B's. That, uh, that, that gets some rave reviews. I think he's. I think he has gotten on a plane to go to Hattie B's before. I, I feel like you're not wrong about that. He, I mean, he'll plan a trip around think, it. Yeah. Yeah. He he absolutely will. That is uh that's destination food for him. That that we know. Um, mean tweets. Yes. So we had a lot of options this week. We are gonna go with this guy. I've actually told you about him before. His name is uh, Horace, aka Large Elephants. That is shout out Horace Grant. E L Y Fants. He's a Bama All fan. Right. And guys, do yourselves a favor. Go follow this guy. Uh, he comments on a lot of our stuff on social media for SDS. And I don't know if it's a joke or not, but it is entertaining. So on Sunday when I posted a picture of Saban, and it was a, basically just a, a quick meme about him being the, the, I guess, taking the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones. It was just a Game of Thrones meme. And the response I got from Horace, because uh, I said, I'm Nicholas Stormborn of the House Saban. He said, he ain't no stormtrooper in nobody's house. He's Saban, and he don't dress like no pirate with turkey feathers on his back neither. There you go. I'm not going to read that last sentence because it's way too much, but that's, <laughs> man, that is some passionate, passionate responses. That is your meat and tweet of the week. Never watch Game of Thrones. You, uh, you, you spent a lot of time watching Game of Thrones, though. Uh, I wish I would have known that over 65% of our audience did not. Yeah, I actually have never felt more left out of the cultural zeitgeist than Sunday night when all those tweets were, were flown in. Yeah, any time I get the chance to use the word zeitgeist, I, I throw it in there. It's always a good one. Um, it might mean too much. This is okay. So this is in here for for a couple of reasons. Arch Manning, not Archie, yeah. Manning, but Arch Manning, who is the grandson of Archie Manning, the son of Cooper, the nephew of Peyton, the nephew of Eli. Yes, that Manning family. Um, he lit up the Newman High School spring game. Why is that newsworthy? Because he's only in eighth grade. And everybody's already freaking out about this kid who's not even going to be a freshman in college until 2023. Um, so, yeah, I mean, everybody, like, w- watching his clips and they're going viral because he threw three touchdowns in a spring game, mind you, in a spring game. And I watched the highlights. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, he's, he's all right. He made a couple nice throws. Don't get me wrong. But, like, he had one of these where it was, like, a you know, a screen and it went 60 yards right. or something like that. And it's like, all right, well, okay, let's let's take it easy. Um one of the replies, though, was just so good that I had to include this. So, uh, D, uh, this person on Twitter, in response to like, the Bleacher Report video that got like 9,000 likes or whatever it was, uh, D. Heitritter, uh, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, man, um, he tweeted in the replies, better than Eli. <laughs> and then, and then five, <laughs> minutes later, five minutes later, he doubles down and he goes, and better than Daniel Jones. <laughs> nice, nice. What, what number was he, by the way? Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. Was oh. he seventeen? I don't know. I, I mean, he's got a, he's got a couple to pick from, but yeah, uh, go with Cooper's number. The Cooper Redemption Tour Legacy lives on. Um, that's what our good friend Matt Michael Scott said. Fun Run. <laughs> Michael Scott Fun Run Rabies for the Cure. Uh, so get excited, Ole Miss fans! You've found your quarterback. Um, by the way, just going to throw this out there too. Uh, Tennessee 
plays against Oklahoma week two of the 2024 season. Lincoln Riley is going to be 40 years old maybe by then. Um, LSU, I'm just saying, they play at Clemson to kick off the 2025 season. Arch Manning, get excited. That's, I like hey, that. If we're, if, if we're allowed to get excited for saying, matchups that are 10 years from now, we can get excited about an eighth-grade quarterback. I really hope he doesn't go to Tennessee. Just go to Ole Miss. That's enough said. Just go to, just go to like, Tulane or something like that. That'd be awesome. That'd be great, too. That'd be legit. Because I think, I think Tulane plays against LSU in 2024. I was looking at the schedules, but that might mean a little bit too much if I'm looking at these schedules. Let's break down the strength of schedules from 2024 for next week. Let's do it. Um... We, we got uh, th- make sure that like like I said make sure that you are joining our Facebook group we're gonna have a lot of cool updates that we're gonna do if you're not if once a week from us is not good enough for you just want to want to exp- go on that platform in addition to what we already provide on Twitter all that stuff make sure that you do that make sure that you give us a five-star review if you have not been a little lacking on the five-star reviews lately just gonna throw that out there a little, don't make me yell um, again. If you got two minutes to spare right now, just go do it. Just go leave us a little five-star review. Love it. You'll get your name read on air. We'll read your five-star review. We'll really, really appreciate it. Make sure that you're watching Facebook Live. Have we settled on a date yet now that you're watching Hannah B. on The Bachelor? Oh, man. So Wednesday or Monday at 8.30. You're right. I said last week it's going to be on Mondays, but, you know. Date night calls. Date night calls. So it'll be Wednesday nights or Monday night. I will post it always in the group uh, on Facebook. So there's that. Follow us on Instagram, uh, follow us on Twitter, at the STS Pod, at C Marler SDS, at CJ O'Gara. Coach O, are you done wrestling alligators, or you got you got a minute to give us a send-off? I love, love impression. It might mean too much, y'all. Talk to you guys next week.